The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Welcome to a very special edition of the Mike Wise Show. My producer, Bruce Bernstein, tried to wrestle the show away from me over the past two weeks but I thwarted the insurrection. Seriously, Bruce, thank you for holding it down. This week, I'm back with some of my favorite guests from the past few months. It's no secret that I'm an admirer of both Lakers Governor Jeannie Buss and LeBron James. When Jeannie joined me shortly after the Lakers won the 2020 NBA championship, we discussed how LeBron not only led the Lakers to their 17th banner, but has also used his platform to advocate for social change for well over a decade. I don't know. I don't know if Michael Jordan said it or not, but Republicans buy sneakers too. Is this whole idea of don't offend uh, either side and don't be convicted in your pro in your public life. Just be have convictions in your private life. And LeBron said, "No, we believe this Trayvon Martin thing was awful enough as a team and as an organization." I thought like nobody. There was no Black Lives Matter at that moment. There was no Ferguson. There was no uh, George Floyd. There was. Um, we did not, we did not, we weren't looking at ourselves like we're looking at ourselves now. And I, I think LeBron, you know, I, I give him so much credit. I think on basketball wise, just how many more titles does he have to win to have his own statue outside Staples Center? Um, you know, he, you know, this was my dad's goal when he bought the team in 1979 was to give Los Angeles a, a, a team that could be part of the conversation in the NBA. He felt that there was such an East Coast bias that people only cared about the Knicks or the 76ers or the Celtics. So, you know, the idea, like, you know, in his lifetime, his dream was to surpass the Celtics in terms of titles. And unfortunately it didn't happen in his lifetime. And, um, you know, LeBron is, you know, somebody, you know, I've only recently really got to know him as a person and I admire him so, so much because we had dinner um, about a year and a half ago and he talked about, you know, he knew the Laker history since he'd been in the league, but he'd done a real deep dive into how this organization came to be and and uh, learned about my dad and um he was he was really um you know he, he said to me you know that what your dad built is something really special and the idea that he left you in charge of it is really such a compliment to you and i hope you realize that and i think that he's he's taken on that you know 
what the Lakers mean to Los Angeles and wanting to get us over the hump, which was to, you know, now we're tied with the Celtics in terms of titles, but maybe take us to, you know, to be greater. So I, I think there's, there's a, a lot of inspiration that he has in terms of getting the Lakers franchise, some a franchise that he respects, you know, back to where they belong. And that's kind of what he said to me um, right after we won the championship. He, he hugged me and he oh, said neat. in my ear, yeah, that, you know, we set out what we wanted to accomplish and we've done it. But, you know, I, I believe that there's more in there and, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see how everything unfolds. I mean, every team, you know, wants to win a championship and it's mm -hmm. very difficult to win a championship. I think this particular year was the most challenging ever in, that we can imagine, uh, you know, being mm -hmm. isolated in a bubble and, you know, sticking through it really showed the resiliency of this team and the commitment that they made to each other to see the, see the process through. And it showed, and I couldn't be more proud. Uh, Dave Wall, who we both know and has a long career um, in, with the league, he, he, he made a great point when I said, well, this is going to be an asterisk season for many reasons too. And he goes, yeah, but an asterisk in a different way. He said, I think that whatever team wins this is going to have one of the signature accomplishments in the history of professional sports because the season was canceled and you had to go into this, this really hermetically sealed bubble while nobody uh, ever wanted for food or entertainment. They, they probably wanted their families and they probably wanted um, a regular life or not to actually just go on the internet and, and find out what's happening in the world. They wanted to be a part of this, the, the, the movement and everything that was going on, many of them. And so I think, I kind of agree with them now. I think this was one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of team sport. And I'm not saying that if the Dodgers win it all, it won't be uh, because they, but they didn't have the season that the NBA had. And they certainly didn't restart and they certainly didn't come back and, and go into a bubble for a long time. So. I, hats off in ways I can't even imagine. I think your father would be incredibly proud of you and the franchise. Thank you. I mean, I, you know, like I said, it's that I know that's what was his driving force. And I, I feel like I still report to him that I'm, I'm doing exactly, you know, I'm, I'm operating the team exactly the way he would have. And that, that's what was kind of troubling you know, um, you know, in the years prior that it just didn't feel like the Lakers and, and I didn't understand some of the decisions that were being made and, you know, finally had to make a change and, you know, get us back on track. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, he, he entrusted me with this team and I will do, I will run it the way he would run it. When I revealed um, that I had been abused sexually as a child in a, in a Penn State article about Penn State many years ago, um, some of the things I've written to this day has split me off with my family on that side. And it's sad and it's awful, but in some ways it was for a good reason. 
I can't imagine the split that you went through with your brothers and everything else. Um, I look at how everything's come out on the other side now. And, uh, someone asked me this on Twitter when I told him I was going to have a podcast on you. He said, I think his name was John Kelly. He said, could you ask Jeannie what her father would say to her now? Like, What, what would he say to you now if, if he could say something to you? And maybe he has, the, you know, if you feel like you still report to him. <laughs> I make the joke that like, I feel like I still report to him. No wonder I haven't had a raise in eight years. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I think he would be, he would be very proud. And, um, you know, he, it, and, you know, like I said, it, it's very hard to win a championship, but his feeling always was you have to be part of the conversation. You can't win a championship if you're not making the playoffs. And in the 32 years he ran the team, they only missed the playoffs twice. And, you know, here we went six years without being part of the conversation. So, it, you know, it just, it, it's like, I didn't understand where, what, what was happening and, and the decisions, you know, um, we had a great coach in Mike Brown and, you know, very defensive minded coach. And then 18 months later, they made a change and hired another great coach, Mike D'Antoni, but a very offensive minded coach who didn't match the roster that we had. And when you're changing coaches every 18 months, your roster can't, it can't adjust that quickly. And so the, the decisions, I couldn't see a path that was being created to get us to be competitive again. I'd say LeBron held up his end of that bargain and hopefully he'll be healthy and ready for the playoffs. I think we know that answer. When it comes to LeBron, the most famous basketball player in the world still keeps some of his personal business personal. In my conversation with legendary author, Roland Lazenby, we discussed how LeBron grew up in the Akron projects, but became more than just a great athlete. He's a role model in every sense of the word. I have tremendous respect for LeBron James. I, I, I mean, he is what I, you know, at VMI, they talk about the citizen soldier. I think LeBron James, the trend I see is he's the citizen athlete. Mm. And he, he really has, I, I also am fascinated because I write a lot about mothers and fathers and all of this stuff. And I, I know I have great friends who are fatherless children who are unbelievable people. And yeah. so I, I, I was eager to tell this story. His father was named Roland, a guy named Roland, who was murdered. Well, uh, it, it, that's never been actually, um, what do you call it? Uh, confirmed, but I, I agree. I agree no, with you. No, I've, I've done all the interviews. With, right, right. With you know, the funny thing was, you if, if you've done all the interviews, you probably know that Wright Thompson is supposedly had this story in the bank for a long time and it hasn't yet run. I'll tell you why. Why? And Wright Thompson's brilliant. I had done several years of work on it when I heard he was going to start doing the story. Okay. And, but there's no way you can tell the story legally. I don't believe to tell the true story because you have to look, his mother does not fit the pattern of this ideal mother. And yet all of the essentials of 
she provided to LeBron. There's this right. love. It, it doesn't fit the standard view. But to explain that to people and to show that story, you really walk through a legal minefield. Well, I, I, I think it's as easy as this. Uh, well, I, I think it's as easy as this. I, I've got all the information too. And I, I'm going to, if you haven't spoken with this person um, that, that used to run his website um, a long time ago and was sort of kicked out of the uh, rich and. Um, we talked about guy? Chris. Yeah, Chris Dennis. Yeah, I've spent so much time. Chris oh, good, good. So he's so he's so so he's a gold he mine. Me to tell this story. Right? What's that? Chris recruited me to tell. Yeah, this and so he so he's wanted that to come out a long time. My gut is this, and I and like I've between us transparently <laughs> between anybody that listens to this, I I had no problem. There was a part of me that was I had the I had the story. I had uh, I, I had not gone to Louisiana where some of his uh, th that side of the family lives, but I had I had a lot of it. And my thought was this, um, and I saw, spoke to Rich Paul about it a little bit. Well, you know, Rich tried to play dumb and act like you know, well, who is it? And you know, and and there, he was almost fishing for information more than he really. Um, I, I knew that he was, but but the bottom line is, is I almost feel like LeBron is wants to announce this himself. And even if it's LeBron James, I don't, I, I don't know if it's my, this is just me and you'll come to your own decision. Like, okay. I don't even know if it's, I don't even, it's, it, it, you know, who am I to out a guy's biological father, even with a birth certificate, even with a logical proof, uh, it, legally, I think, I think it's more ethically than legally almost. I think it's both. And okay. I, how is it? How would it be legally if you actually have the birth certificate and the um, and everything else that 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 proves that he's his father? Um, I, I, I mean, to me, it would just be a bad. It would be a. It would be an ethical judgment not to ask him if he was okay with it. That's the only thing. Right. I, you know, I, I've interviewed Roland's mother, Cookie. I, okay. I, I've done all of the stuff. There's a general acknowledgement of it. That's part of the legal problems. You you can't really right. get that down. But the and there's a huge moral ethical part of it. But the other part of it is Cookie's uh, not Cookie, but his mother is not a public figure. She doesn't really project herself. Yeah into the world she's not trying to make a living off of her persona she's a private person yeah and i i just know having gone through a number of legal reviews on books um and i explained this to chris and i explained to him why wright thompson's story never appeared why for all of these reasons we've just laid out I, I think it's more than that. I think I think ESPN. God bless my former employer. I think I think there's a that there that somehow there's going to be a deal. Maybe not by ESPN, but that LeBron is going to somehow tell that he wants to have um, uh, he wants to have that story to himself to tell the world, and he wants to capitalize on it. Which God love, yeah, I, God love, like fine. But I'm I just I, I think that I almost think like. That would be the only reason because 
technically, if you got LeBron, if you if you got LeBron, if you had a minute with LeBron and you said, look, I know I know the story. I know. Can I use can I use this? And he said, yes. Boom. You're scot free. Right. Um, it would be hard to to spend the time doing a LeBron book. Absent the fact that I really have never spent any time with LeBron James. Yeah. A big part of it. I, uh, all the other people I've written about in that regard, I, it's not like I'm the best friends of any of them. I was, you know, Michael Jordan treated me very well, but it took me a good while to have that kind of relationship with him. And now he's very pissed off at me for having written uh, his, his biography. He shook my hand afterward, but he's not happy. Um, because he oh, wanted to monetize it himself or. Well, possibly, you know, biographies are like biographies for people who are still living are sort of like having autopsies while you're still alive. <laughs> That's and actually pretty good. It is. And my wife said, I've not if you get, not if you actually get, not if you, uh, not if you help. <laughs> I've been married 46 years. And my wife said, look, if you first, she didn't want me to write anymore. And I probably won't. But she says, if you're going to do another book, pick an old dead guy. Well, LeBron James will eventually get a statue outside Staples Center. Pat Riley, who coached the Lakers to four NBA championships, still has not, probably because he's still active with a competitor, the Miami Heat. But before Riles joined Miami more than 25 years ago, he coached the New York Knicks to the 1994 NBA Finals with 223 wins in four seasons. Former Knicks guard and current Mavericks analyst Derek Harper played for the Hall of Fame coach and shares an amazing story about the raw emotions they felt after the most bitter loss of both of their careers. 1994, Finals Game 7 against Houston. This is a crazy story, but uh, yeah. after Game 7, after we lost yeah. in the Finals Game 7, Rouse had a suit on, I had my uniform on, I was the last one to leave the arena. And believe it or not, Rouse and I sat in the shower. With the shower, one of the showers running, just having conversation about getting back. Underst him understanding, he's, he was telling me how, it was my first championship opportunity. Yeah. And he had already been through the war of losing a championship. So what basically was going on, he was trying to console me to get me ready for the next year. Obviously, wow. you think automatically you're going to get back. It never turns out that way, unless you're the Lakers and the Bulls back in their heydays. Yeah. But we sat in the shower, man. I mean, mourning that particular loss. Because remember, Mike, it was 3-2 wow. going to Houston. He just pulls up a seat in his suit and just starts man, talking to you while the water's we're running. We're just sitting in the dam in the shower, man, just talking about how disappointing it was. And yeah. Hart, we're going to get back here, and you know what to do the next time. And just, I'll John, never John, told, John Starks told me once he cried in the shower that, after that game. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah, sure. I was in tears. I'm not going to yeah. lie to you, man. And, and, and the other thing, last, to add to that, that particular story, yeah. is the whole summer, Pat Riley wrote me letters, wrote me notes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, to come back into the next season, the 95, 96 season. He wrote me notes, yeah. just putting emphasis on little thing. And because that's what that's the difference in winning and losing. Yeah. When you're in the championship. People think it's it's a big thing. 
it's always little nuances, man, that keep you from becoming a championship. And Ralph shared a lot of those things with me, man. And like I said, man, that Pat Riley, he seeked me out this past season when the heat was in town. Yeah. To give me a fucking hug and a, a kiss on the cheek, man. Just to uh that's just cool. to check on me. That that's my guy, man. I love that. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I have great respect for him. And yeah, even, even though he, he ran a stern ship, um, yeah. but he but you know that that's you need that. Um yeah. I still I had a player tell me that tell me if this is true or not. Charles Smith, they they they, they think he's you know Charles Smith, God bless him. They, a couple players thought he was dogging it a little bit on the injury list, and apparently he walks in the locker room once, and and Riles turns around on the chalkboard and goes, "Charles, if I needed one minute tonight, one minute to win yes. a championship, could you do true. it?" You know this story. <laughs> true, true, so true. And then and Charles, was, and then Charles like, "Yeah, coach." And then Jer- why Riley's writing on the chalkboard again? He spins around and goes, "Then why the fuck are you in that suit?" Wow. <laughs> what do the guys in the locker room hey. say after that? Man, everybody looked right at Charles. What else oh, what yeah. is there to say other than, yeah, he could, if you could give us a minute, give us a minute, man. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, apparently he was off the injury list the next day and back in practice. You understand what I'm saying? So obviously he could have been off of that injury list. Right. And I love I love Smitty. I love Charles. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a dear yeah. friend. I, I don't – but, you, you, you know, everybody's different. Riley's greatest victories came with the Showtime Lakers against the Boston Celtics in the 1980s. That era is best remembered for the Magic Johnson-Larry Bird NBA Finals matchups in 84, 85, and 87. Nobody in the media knew Bird better than former Boston Globe columnist Bob Ryan, who covered the Celtics for more than four decades. Larry Bird was a bright guy who had grown up in a specific area of the country, southwestern Louisiana, uh, Indiana, uh, where there was no value placed priced on uh, upward mobility, no value placed on education. Uh, and, and if he had not been six feet nine and, and, and with, with the talent that he had, he probably would have wound up spending his whole life there being just another guy you know, that was born there, worked there, died there, and you know the world would never know about him. But Larry Ware was, was that rarity. When he got to Boston, he began to blossom. He began to see the world, a, a bigger world. Mm. And, and, and to the point where uh, many years down the road, I wrote a column for a story for the Boston Sunday Magazine about the blossoming of Larry Bird, and and how he had learned to manipulate the media and handle the media and enjoy the the interaction. Something, yeah. Sean. The first time I met him, Mike, ever met him was the summer of of uh, eighty, uh, and I was commissioned to do a story for the late lamented Us Magazine, the People Magazine AAA com- uh, competitor of the right. time, and. It was the interview was conducted at his agent, Bob Wolf's house, which is like around the corner from his house because he wouldn't let any media into his house. And he made it clear, I'll do my and one of the things he told me off the record, you know, I mean, and, and, and as we did the story was uh, I'll do my duties with the media, but I'm not no one's ever going to come to my house or anything. Else. The idea that he could ever become friendly with a member of the media was so alien to him. He, he just was wary, suspicious. Uh, he, was, he was a friend hip from French Lake still. Yeah, I won't go to say hostile, but suspicious and wary and, and worrisome. And, you know, well, we became, we hit it off right away. We became friendly. And uh, he asked me to do his book. And I did his first book uh, of, and, and, uh, and uh, Drive. And, Drive and, was Drive was one of the, one of the books that uh, it was my senior year. I don't want to make you feel a little bit, my no, senior, right. year co- senior year college. And I got it and I was mesmerized. And I'm like, I want to write a book like that one day. And, um, and I just remember th- now, 
I didn't know I would be ghostwriting Shaq's book. It was a little weird doing that at like whatever he was, 30. But but you got Larry Bird. And like to see that you had so much, there was so much richness. And I remember, I don't let me tell me, tell me if this is right or not. Mm-hmm. I remember the, uh, af- reading interviews about that afterwards. And it was either Bob Wolf or somebody that they, they thought that there, there, Larry had some ugly, nasty fights when he was younger. And they wanted to take that out of the book because they thought it it made him too rough edged. And they went and Bird didn't care, but like, but his but his people cared because they didn't want that part of Larry Bird, you know, coming out there. And 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 that. And I remember you talking about that. I'm thinking those must be great stories that never even got out. Well, that's all true. And and Bob Wolf had uh, a Larry's influence, you know, influenced Larry. And 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 one of the I think the phrase we with one of the ones the, the grandmothers would like, you know. And and uh, so yeah, the the final product. Uh, mm. Was homogenized to an extent, you know. It wasn't false. It wasn't still great. It wasn't falsified. It wasn't. It was. Yeah. But it was. It was. You know, there were, there were some things left out, of course. Um, but I was honored and thrilled to be able to yeah. do it. And of course, it was. You know, it, it was a good success and all that. But Larry, yeah, I'm very fond of Larry. And yeah. and um, and of course, one of the great fun things about that book was um, that, in case anybody's wondering, his friendship with Magic is legit. And, oh. and Magic did the forward for the book, and and then they they you know, when 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 uh, uh, the day that Magic announced to the world that he was HIV positive, one of the first people he called mm-hmm. Larry. The day that Larry retired, one of the first people he recalled was Magic. Uh, they have maintained a friendship over the years. It's all for real. Yeah, and, I lo- that's. I want to know that. I think I never thought it was. Fun. I remember the, the, the you know Bird was famous for. He wouldn't, he'd duck out on the Boston media, but he'd meet some ladies in Utah for a pie. They'd show up, like, hi, Larry, and they'd bring him a pie in the hotel lobby. And, then, and or he'd go and spend time with some local yokel reporter that he just thought was interesting. And I talked him into, when I was covering high school sports in Sacramento for the union, I don't even remember Don Drysdale. He was a heavy set guy that used to cover the Kings. I was sort of, they gave me the backup for a while. And I remember, and I go, I want to do a story on Bird. They go, Bird won't talk to you. And then sure enough, I talked him into, uh, you know, I go, hey, can you go, will you go to lunch with me tomorrow at the High Regency? And I, I'm literally following the Celtics bus back. And sure enough, he t- that was like a week after, it was his last season, a week after. And he told me he cried when Magic called him and he just broke down. And, yeah. and I was like, wow, this, the, 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 the respect level was so much even deeper than the competition and the love for each other. And it's one of the, like even that play that they showed on Broadway yeah. doesn't, really, doesn't really do it justice. No, it doesn't. Uh, no, it doesn't. It was an interesting idea. Yeah. Just, well, I used to kid Larry, you know, when I realized as the years gone on and years went on and I was how, how, how bright he really was. I used to kid him. I said, you, you, you successfully evaded, evaded the American educational system for 20 years. <laughs> but, you know, but he's because I, I and I one accurate prediction I made and I did say it at the time that if there was somebody in that period of time in that in that talent pool who could be the next Jerry West, i.e. a a superstar player who mm. a successful executive it was larry bird i just thought his innate instinct for for and you know i think what's the great go ahead i cut you off. he was a good executive with indiana and of course as a coach the great the coaching thing was phenomenal it was fabulous because he said three years yeah you know, no one no one lives up to that promise he said three years that's it guess what three years he goes <laughs> he, he goes to the finals you know, they didn't have a chance, but he got him to the finals. But the one that killed him, though, Mike, 
was here they lost to the Bulls. Game seven. He's right there. It's right there. I'm in that game too. Ah. And to this day, I'm like, to this day, I'm like going, Mark Jackson had a couple of turnovers at the end. And I just go like, God, they had that. They had their number. They had Michael Jordan in a game seven. Remember the jump ball. And Larry blames himself to to his grave. He will blame himself. He didn't think he positioned them well. There was a big jump ball, like 20 seconds. Oh, that's right. He, He blames himself for that. Okay. Here's the thing that drives him crazy. Yeah. If they win, they're playing the Jazz. Yeah. They had swept the Jazz. They toyed with the Jazz. Oh, they had the Jazz. He's winning it all. The Jazz. You know, Although that's and, a great series. Stockton and Malone were at their peak at that yeah, point. Yeah, but they but they owned them, he said. Yeah, okay. And, and they did. I don't know. He said. I'm well, just, and they had the bodies. They had the depth. I mean, yeah. the Jazz, that was the Jazz thing behind Malone and Stockton. They had all these bodies. They had all these great role players. Well, so did the Pacers behind Reggie and that crew. They just, you know, Rick Smiths and all those guys. Harry did it three years. And as he said, he quit. He never did it again. That's yeah, that's great. Like, I think he's is he even working now as other than a consultant or is he just still, hanging out I, in Naples? I think he's still on the payroll. I got I gotta go talk to him. I've talked to him for a while, a little while. Um, but uh I think yeah. he's still on the payroll, but you know, he's living in Florida for the most part. I think I'm sure he's there now. And, M- most and, amazing thing that Bob Ryan ever saw is. Bird do on the court. Yeah. Then what was the most amazing thing that you saw him ever do on the court? Um, wow, the most amazing thing I ever saw him do on the court. One one guy said I, I read this years ago that maybe it was Pete. Remember Pete Axtell? He, sure. he did a, he did a great story about he he sat next to his brother Eddie, but you know of course awesome. Eddie's you know Eddie and oh one time he picked up a flat ball and threw it across the court at our. I my favorite. That's so many, but one of the things I think that separated him from and 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 of course Magic you could say the same thing from from Michael and Michael's the greatest virtuoso all right I just told you that a few minutes ago mm-hmm. never played but Larry could do something and magic magic could do something but Larry more specifically amazing because of nobody ever in the history of this game accomplished more with the ball in his hands uh less in other words you know it, mm. about LeBron Le, he, and, he and LeBron are the two greatest passing forwards of all time but LeBron's got the ball all the damn time Larry did not have the ball at the damn time. Larry saw no. two steps ahead. Okay. Larry Bird could control games without scoring more than any non-point guard in the history of basketball. Okay. I, I'm, st- I, I'm stealing that. In a way that Michael couldn't even dream of. One night in Phoenix, I remember this. We're mm. in Phoenix and they're down big at the half. And they come out and they have a huge third quarter. And they come back and they went, eventually win the game. And Larry Bird controlled the entire game in the third quarter, and he never took a shot. He had like mm. seven assists. And my, Michael couldn't – that's not Michael's game. Yeah. So that's, and think about this. Nobody accomplished more with the ball in his hands less than Larry Bird. Legendary NBA photographer Andy Bernstein was honored by the Basketball Hall of Fame with the Kurt Gowdy Media Award in 2018. Andy's documented great NBA moments since the early 80s. His famous photo of Bird and Magic appearing to fight over the Larry O'Brien trophy required more from him than just camera skills. You had a relationship with those guys. Talk about that photo. What was the story behind that one? Oh, Mike, that was one of the most nerve-wracking situations of my career. So when was that? Well, so this was uh okay, let's let's put it in perspective. 86. Yeah, Celtics win the championship, right? They beat Houston. Beat the Rockets in six. So in '87, um, they were projected to meet each other, right? So 
Sport Magazine um, projects Lakers Celtics finals in 87. But, you know, as you know, the magazine comes out before the finals. And the only time to get Magic and Bird together would be in February. You know, finals don't start till June. In February, when the Celtics came through LA to play the Lakers, the one of two times they played each other, right? So picture this, all right? Picture this happening today. It's a 1230 game day on a Sunday. I have to go to, I, I'm pretty sure it was Josh Rosenfeld at the time and Jeff Twist, and, and I have to make the request. Sport Magazine for their cover wants to have Magic and Bird posed together and the only time we have to do it is before a 12:30 national game on Sunday. Oh. <laughs> and they both were like, "Are you crazy?" I said, "Well, it's got to get done." And uh, they they asked the guys. The guys said, "Okay, you know, you got." From this the- is how great PR was back then. By yeah, the way, you have from Josh Rosenfeld, the Lakers PR director, Jeff Twist, yes. the Celtics PR director, have such a relationship that they could call in a favor with the two greatest players in not just their franchise's history, but two of the greatest players in the history of the game. And they basically said, I know you guys are rivals, but, you know, you're starting to respect each other. You already did the conference. Can you do this for us on a game day in the middle of the season? Like you like, and and I'm not saying that PR directors are bad anymore, but they're just faced with so much more because of the, these guys are so walled around them with people that represent them and people that um, portend to represent them. And so what you get into is sort of a lot of PR directors by their own admission become more protectors than facilitators. And these guys were like, we know that these guys need to be on this cover of this magazine. We know Andy Bernstein needs to get a shot. How awesome is that? Yeah. Yeah, and, and so this, I would, you know, like, I would, like I can look back on it now as to for the access and everything we get right now, and I can go, that's awesome. I'm told I have between ten, eleven fifty and eleven fifty two to get this picture. And if yep. you remember the configuration of the forum locker rooms, the visitors locker room, there was a little like sort of hallway, and then across from it was a Laker girls locker room, and then a, a spare locker room. So I had my stuff set up in there, very easy, simple portrait setup. They were going to both, each PR guy was going to bring those guys in, right? Hmm. And I had to be ready. So my idea was like, was like two fighters, you know, the old posters of the two boxers looking at each other. Ali Frazier. Yes. Staring each other down with the trophy on a pedestal, like a Greek pedestal, um, like in between them. Right. And so I get them in there. I say, guys, you know, I got very little time. This is what I want to do. Need you guys looking straight at each other, like the meanest expression you can have, ready to go. And they're like, yeah, I go three, two, one. And just as I'm about to click the trigger, they just crack up. (laughs) (laughs) And Magic looks at me and goes, man, we can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Whatever you could give me, fellas, you know, and I took four. It it goes to show you, though, the the the. The 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 the, uh, the organic idea worked better with the yeah. magic hat, whatever whatever they came to mind. Right, but that's the story behind that photo. Oh, Everybody thinks oh, they were telling each other a joke or something. No, it was me directing them and then just not doing it. <laughs> Back in the Magic Bird years, there were no women coaches on NBA benches. But with David Stern's support for the WNBA as a starting point, the NBA gradually opened its doors to women in the coaching ranks. Nancy Lieberman, Becky Hammond, and Kara Lawson have all served as NBA assistants, with Kara now coaching the Duke women's team. When Stan Van Gundy took over as Pelicans head coach in late 2020, 
he inherited assistant coach and Hall of Famer Teresa Weatherspoon. He also understands the need to continue developing more female coaches. I was fortunate in that Teresa was with the Pelicans last year. And so all I did basically was elevate her on my staff. But I but I knew, and I think one of the problems with especially in our league with women getting in and things is guys like myself don't run in those circles. And Mm. so we don't know a lot of the great women coaches out there. I mean, I know who they are and respected and things like that, but I, my, my circle there isn't big enough and you have to get outside of your comfort zone and talk to people and, you know, Mm find the best people. And, and so that's, that's what I think happens when people talk about the old boy network. I think most people in most jobs, unfortunately, stick to the people they know the most about. Um, yeah. and until we can get more women into the pipeline. And by that, I mean, I think one of the problems with what we've done in the NBA, I'm not a problem, but one of the failings of it is we've concentrated so much in terms of getting women on the bench. You know, Becky Hammond was the big story in the whole thing. What we need to do is I think have a real focus on getting more women in the video room, getting more Mm. women into internships, because that's how these people come up. You know I mean? Ultra video room guy, video coordinator. Yeah. Frank Vogel, video room guy, you know? So those are, that's the entry level position in our league. We need to get women into those jobs and give them a chance to Uh. grow in organizations. So now people say, Hey, that, that woman's really good. She's really good. And they make it on their own and they make it on their own merits in that way. And then the second thing we need to do is, Somehow we've got to, people like me have to increase our, it's hard now in this day and age with COVID, but increase our interaction, let's say in the off season um, with women coaches at all levels to get to know who's really good and who you like and, you know, who you would be interested in hiring and things like that. We've got to get outside of our, our own circle and, um, because it does become an old boys network and not, not because that's intentional, but you've got to intentionally do something different. I feel white men like ourselves are being marginal. No, I'm kidding. It's uh, that, yeah, was, no, that's that, like, that was my Sean Hannity. Yeah, I know. That's uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff makes you laugh when you feel like all the advantage, when I see all the advantages that I've personally right. had and everything else. So um it's easy, quite honestly, in the NBA. Um, you know, I, I think we've done a good job as a league. You know, I, I look at Richard Lapchick, um, you yeah. know, his, the, the diversity guy. Yeah, uh, and, and he grades all the leagues and things. Yeah. And our league always does fantastic in terms of racial diversity. Um, yeah. I'm sure we could be better, um, but but we do well in that area. But gender diversity is a whole nother uh, – a whole nother thing. And so it's just something I think that we've got to get to know people outside of our own sphere to, to know who's really good. And so, yeah, like I talked to Swin when I first got here, you know, um, when we were putting the staff together about 
Spoon and, and about some other women coaches and things like that, because there's just, I mean, believe me, I know plenty, but a lot of the ones I know are in positions they're not leaving to become an assistant. Yeah, some of them got great college, some of them got head coached, head coaching college jobs. Exactly, but there's yes. some great women coaching yep. in our league now. And um, what what part? My, what's Teresa Witherspoon doing? She's on our bench. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, she's on our bench, and she last year was a they called her a two way right. coach, so she was going with their two way players. Back and forth from New Orleans to Erie, so. But I'm, I'm sorry, like what's she doing? Like I'm sorry, what's she doing on your bench? Like, yeah, well, so she, um, in in terms of players, she's spending a lot of time um, with our point guards, and particularly, okay. she has put in. She's the primary person working with our rookie Kyra Lewis. Speaking of coaches and awkward segues, one of our repeat offenders on the Mike Wise Show is George Carl, number six on the all-time NBA coaching victory list. George, who turned 70 on May 12th, has a son, Kobe, who played in the NBA and is a G League head coach. George also has an adult daughter. But as an older dad myself, I was curious about his third child. Two more. Oh, how's it going with your teenage daughter? Casey Grace? Yeah. She started basketball last week. Can they play indoors there? They're indoors. They're wearing masks. They're playing with masks. Yeah. Um, uh, That... I think that helps her. You know, yeah. she's been, she's been, her school has been in, in session. So they've been going to school. It's a private school. Yeah. Um, but they've had some breaks where they've done Zoom because they've had some COVID breakouts. Yeah. Uh, but socially, it's good that she has basketball. She's an athlete. She loves to play basketball, volleyball, soccer, tennis, swimmer. She's a swimmer. And she's not had a lot of that socialization. So I'm happy about that. I don't get, right now, it doesn't look like I'm going to get to be able to see her play. But I'm, she's a good basketball player. She's not as good. She's a better soccer player than basketball. And she just plays basketball, but she, she likes the game. And she tells me all the time, I go, Dad, I'm not very good because I can't shoot. I said, Casey, you never practice shooting. But she can defend, she can rebound, and uh, she's a tough son of a bitch. She's not <laughs> afraid of what's going on out there. Uh, that, I'm very proud of her. Oh, that's awesome. I that, that, that makes a big difference. Uh, the greatest player I thought you ever coached was Gary Payton. Was there a better one? Uh, you know, Gary is the best player. Because yeah. I think he understood winning. Mm-hmm. He understood defense. He had he had a better better makeup. Sean Kemp was the most talented player I've ever coached. Mm. Mello might be the best scorer I have ever coached. Okay. But they didn't understand the intricacies of being a champion. And Gary did. Mm. And uh, the best teammate I ever had is Nate McMillan. Nate McMillan. Yeah, because I mean, I came here when Gary and Nate were battling for the point guard position of the team, and and Gary and I and Nate and I had a conversation about Gary, and and he basically told me in my first meeting, Coach, whatever you need me to do, I'll do. 
You know, you know, like I, if Gary's if Gary's got to be the starter, I'm cool. And you know, so many, that guy doesn't exist anymore in the NBA. No, no. That guy, that guy would be calling his agent, has to be traded. <laughs> but you know, Nate is one of the most selfless basketball players and a very good basketball player. And I still believe if he would have been healthy in 96, we would have played Michael in game seven. George mentioned his former Seattle Sonic guard, Nate McMillan, who became a very successful head coach after his playing career. Coach McMillan has resurrected the season for the Atlanta Hawks since replacing Lloyd Pierce as head coach back in early March. But here on the Mike Wise Show, we never get tired of talking about coaches like George Carl, with friends like Mark Kestisher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio. You got to the Albany Patroons after Phil Jackson, didn't you? Yeah, I was in high school when Phil was there. I was in college when Bill Musselman was there. Um, yeah. Uh, George Carl was my coach. Terry Stotts was his assistant. And That's that was pretty cool. Six team. That was a great team. Was George Carl a nut then, too? Well, uh, yes. He, well, he was, he was, I think, had already gotten to his 40s. He was in his early 40s. Yeah. He was back from Real Madrid right before he went to Seattle. And uh, he was still, there was moments of uh, lunacy, but he was great. He, oh, he, hey, no, we love, you know, I, I say nuts in a good way. He, yes. He's just eccentric, off the handle, but I, I love that he puts himself out there. So many people oh, won't. He great. He used to take yeah. us out to uh, lunch on game days, dinner on non-game days, and the, the only caveat was it was free, but he ordered. And I, had, I still have the worst palate, so he would order stuff that <laughs> I just could not eat. But I think he had fun doing that to me. And he would buy me ties and socks, you know, dress socks along the way for all of us. And I think I still have a few of those ties in my rotation. That's pretty cool. Oh, man. Uh, shoot. True or false? PJ Carlissimo knows every restaurant manager in North America and is able to get his colleagues a table for a post-game meal even after closing time. True, and he knows every major D's name, every bartender's name. It's wow. unbelievable. I think it's the first thing he does when he walks into a hotel or restaurant is he figures out everyone's name and he remembers it for the, the remainder of time. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, Hubie Brown, you know, we know he's a Hall of Famer and a force in nature, even as he approaches his 87th birthday. Do you have a favorite Hubie story? <laughs> oh, man. Or can you tell I, it? I guess I, I should ask. I love Hubie's stories to me because yeah. any situation that comes up in basketball and you ask him about it, you know, whether it was a foul call or a play yeah. design, and it will always go back to any time in his NBA career, perhaps even – you know, his college coaching career and, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe back to the days, you know, during World War II, post-World War II. Um, my favorite recollection, though, is being the studio host when Dr. Jack Ramsey and Hubie Brown were in a three-man booth with Jim Durham. Uh, and we would go out to dinner. And those guys had so much respect for each other, but they weren't afraid to argue. Like, we've kind of lost that in today's world. Sure. Where, you know, we're so divided on our opinions that you can't even have a friendly conversation or be friends if you don't agree on the same thing. And so I was always amazed at how they could take two different views of a big play during, let's just say, the 2009 finals, for example. And they would have the salt and the pepper shaker and the sugar packets, and they'd lay it all on the table, and each of them would diagram the play and then kind of yell at each other like, Hubie, you can't do this when you're doing that. And, and uh, they would just go back and forth and what they would do in that situation. Uh, I, I love those moments and treasure those. That's, that's tremendous. 
Uh, the yeah, two thousand nine. So that would have been the Lakers and the Magic. Been, now, if you are Kobe Bryant and you are in the painted area, <laughs> see, and they are guarding you like Dwight Howard can, you are screwed. <laughs> but, right. Uh, I, I try to do my Hubie Brown impression, and man. then people tell me it's Yiddish Hubie Brown. For some reason, I end up with a little. <laughs> Uh, a Yiddish uh, uh, accent to it. I don't know how, but that's usually Mitch, Mitch my friend Mitch Lawrence, former NBA uh, writer for the New York Daily News. He does a great QB. He <laughs> is very special. He's a wonderful man. There have been many wonderful men and women as guests on this show over the years. We hope you've enjoyed their stories and we'll continue to bring you closer to members of the basketball family each week on the Mike Wise Show. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, and our editor, Kristen Woolley. Please watch all of our Pure Hoops Media shows and check out our video segments on the Pure Hoops Media YouTube channel. Also, congratulations to our own King McClure, co-host of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, and proud Baylor alum on the national championship performance of his beloved Bears. King, you didn't do anything, but your heart was there, so that's what matters. Until next time, keep wearing your masks, Get the darn vaccine, keep each other safe, and we'll talk soon. Peace! The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.